It's been a delight to share this day with you here at Kensington Temple. I again bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Texas, the Lone Star State. And uh, it's good to be here and share this, the spirit and fellowship of this anointed body of Christ. This evening, <laughs> just a word about you too. That is Y-O-U-T-O-O, -O, not the group. You too <laughs> can be a follower. If you'd open the Gospel of John with me to chapter 1, you find there in the 35th verse uh, an account of the very first persons to follow Jesus. This is right front of mind of me because I spent the last few days in Tiberias and Capernaum and Bethsaida around the lake, seven by 13 miles, where Jesus enjoyed his great public ministry. So it's front of mind, those first people on that lake that saw him, heard him, and followed him. There's a record of them in John 1 and 35. It's just Look at them a moment, these first followers. It says again, the next day, John, meaning John the baptizer, stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came, saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. It was about the tenth hour, four o'clock. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon. Said to him, We've found the Messiah. He's translated to the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said, Follow me. And now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. <laughs> These first followers that would become the very first 
of a world filled with people over 20 centuries who followed Jesus. Have <laughs> you ever noticed that uh, in physical creation there seems to be no limit of creativity? No two sunsets ever look exactly the same. No two sunrises. I spent a week down in the Caribbean island, got up before sunrise every morning, and each morning when the sun crested over the eastern horizon, the way the water turned from an inky dark to a deep navy, all the way through to an azure and an aquamarine, each morning was different. Same thing with mountainscapes. No two mountains exactly the same, all that in the macrocosm, but in the microcosm. Out here, out here, out here at the extension of who you are, this opposing thumb. Now you could do without it, you wouldn't want to, but you could do without it. But out here at this nice but disposable piece of you, no two humans have ever been exactly the same. And that's not even to mention the double helix of that uh, DNA. <laughs> God specializes in individuals. And sometimes I run into people who feel like if you became a Christian, you'd become a Christian clone, just a ditto mark of everybody else. But the truth is, the first followers of Jesus and everyone else who ever followed him are originals, and he called them that way. Let's just look at these for a minute, and I'll take my seat. <laughs> the first two to show up were two who were asking life's biggest questions. John the baptizer is out in the wilderness of Judea. It looks like a moonscape if you go there. He didn't know the first three principles of real estate, location, location, location. <laughs> Yet out in the middle of nowhere, this bizarre Baptist who dressed like yesterday and sounded like tomorrow <laughs> had millions, I just people flooded to hear him because he said God is about to do something. And everyone with any spiritual sense was gathered there. And these two from Bethsaida were there. Now, Bethsaida wouldn't ring a bell today, but it was a city on the border of the Greeks and Israel. And the people who lived there were asking life's biggest questions. Greeks did that. Why am I here? Does life have a purpose? Am I just a gathering of material? Or is there something beyond the rational and the material. They were asking life's biggest questions. And they were standing out there with that bizarre Baptist. And one day, when Jesus of Nazareth walked by, the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. And that's all it took for these two to fall in behind Jesus. Have you ever been on the street and you felt like somebody was behind you, call it having eyes in the back of your head? You just knew somebody was there. Jesus felt that way and he turned around and said, What are you looking for? They said, where do you live? And his answer belongs to the ages. Come and see. Now that slips the bonds of its context. And it becomes true of everyone who follows Jesus. He won't coerce you. He won't even compel you. 
Do you know what he'll say? Come and see. Because he can bear your scrutiny. I don't know what kind of big questions someone may have brought here tonight. Maybe you're in university. Maybe you're studying cosmology. Maybe you're studying, I don't know what. I don't know what the question might be. But he still says, come and see. <laughs> Chuck Colson, the American apologist and evangelist said the big question of the 21st century is not first of all redemption or being saved it is first of all creation is there a God who made anything if you don't believe there's a God who made you then you don't really think you need to be saved from anything and he says come and see you know cosmologists say that this universe that is 14 billion light years in size right now. I got that answer. I was preaching it in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they sent me to dinner with a Duke University astronomer. Quite frankly, I was a little bit intimidated. What do you talk to an astronomer about? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I didn't know what to say. And so I said, how big do you people at Duke think the universe is? And he didn't even hesitate said 14 billion light years. If you harnessed a beam of light, rode it at 186,000 miles a second, take you that long to get to the edge of it. Well, I was eating a hamburger and I kind of gulped. Said, here we are on this tiny planet, 25,000 miles around at its circumference. My car has four times that many miles on it. And yet, those of us who are of faith believe that Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, reached down to this tiny planet in one galaxy that's part of a cluster of 20 galaxies in a universe with billions of them and did something unusual here. In fact, so fine-tuned it that life can exist here. <laughs> the 30 different factors in that fine-tuning, I couldn't go into all of them, but one of them is just gravity. If it were one out of one trillion, 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 trillion degree different, just a tiny bit, more or less, life couldn't exist. Wherever you touch this created place that we live, there seems to be a fingerprint for those who are asking life's biggest questions. I remember the university where I teach, there was a religious emphasis week, and at the end of it, there'd been a big sign that said, Jesus is the answer. Two undergraduate were carrying it out, and a rather cynical person said, well, what's the question? <laughs> For those of us who are people of faith, we confess that in him, all things hold together. Without him was not anything made that was made that that baby in the cradle at Bethlehem and that man of Nazareth is son of man, son of God, and he can bear your scrutiny if you're asking life's big questions. He says, come and see. But wait a minute. <laughs> that was those two followers. The next one, <laughs> the next one to follow him, all he had was potential. I'd like to be a fly on a wall sometime and listen to some conversations 
over in the States always wonder what it's like when the presidency changes and, and, and they have to ride together to the inauguration. What do they talk about? I'd like to be a fly on the wall in that limo. But I would love to have been a fly on the wall that day when Jesus first met Simon, son of Jonah. That word Simon, son of Jonah, literally means Simon, son of a dove. The Hebrew word Jonah means dove. A dove is a flighty, capricious, fickle, unpredictable bird, and that's what Simon was. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of a dove, but when I'm finished with you, your name is going to be Rock. In fact, I'm going to build my church on people like you. <laughs> when Jesus looked at that big fisherman, all Simon brought to him was potential. That meant he hasn't done it yet. The remarkable thing about Jesus is how he looks at those who follow him. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't read your life like you would read a novel by John Grisham or whoever. No, he knows the last page from the very beginning. It's a story about Michelangelo. I don't mean the Ninja Turtle, I mean the artist. <laughs> he went from Rome back to Florence to do some family business, and since he was a sculptor, he went out to the sculpture's yard where the guild where they worked and there was a stone there a piece of big white florentine marble that had sat there for years nobody wanted to touch it or work with it because it had a flaw through it and they knew if they got into it and spent years on it they might encounter that flaw so it just sat there in the sculptor's yard it was called the giant but nobody wanted to touch it but michelangelo walked round around it looked at it from many angles and later on, he said, I saw Moses in it. <laughs> he said, it wasn't so much that I carved it. I saw him in it. Now you can visit in one of the churches of Rome, that sculpture that belongs to the ages, Moses. Nobody else saw him in that block of marble. Michelangelo did. In a higher, holier, heavier way. I've watched Jesus look at people <laughs> for a half century preaching. And he sees that inside of a Simon son of a dove, there's a rock. And on people like that, he'd build his church. I expect out of the hundreds of people here tonight, there may be someone who just say, you know, if I told you the truth, Joel, <laughs> I don't know anybody that sees anything in me. And in fact, I've been dismissed. I've been belittled. I've been marginalized. <laughs> in fact, you'd say, I, 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 I'm not even sure what I see in me. The good news of the gospel is, that time and time again, the risen Christ looks at people. And where someone saw Simon, son of a dove, he sees a rock. It may be all you bring to him is potential. Potential means you haven't done it yet. He sees it differently. 
But wait a minute, we're talking about you too can be a follower. The next one is the most fascinating to me. So next day, Jesus is about to go begin his grand public ministry, his year of popularity in Galilee. But, but, but it says in verse 45, the following day he wanted to go to Galilee, but he, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now these others were brought to him or came to him, but he said, I've got to find Philip. The word in the Greek New Testament is, is, is Eureka. It, it was a word used in 1849 when gold was found out in the west of the United States. Eureka, I found you, Philip. Now, here's an interesting thing about Philip. Philip shows up three times in the Gospels, and every time he shows up, he doesn't quite seem to know what's going on. I, you could almost call him Philip the Clueless. <laughs> You know, one time he's been out with Jesus all day. There's 5,000 men plus women and children. They haven't had anything to eat all day. And he came up with the brilliant deduction looking at them. These folks are all hungry. <laughs> or when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Philip scratched his head and said, uh, would you show us the Father? <laughs> he just, he wasn't drafted in the first round. <laughs> and yet, it says Jesus deliberately found this man who most of the time seemed to be clueless when he shows up in the Gospels. And one of the 12 is uh, Philip the uh, clueless. I don't know about you, but I know there was a time in my life when you could have tattooed that on me. <laughs> Joel the Clueless. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what was next. And yet, this is the one that Jesus looked up and found and said, you follow me. Maybe because there's more people like Philip than anyone else. I remember in one of my pastorates back in Texas, we used to go out on Monday night to evangelize, knock on doors all over Fort Worth, Texas, out where the West began, where the real cowboys are. Not the Dallas Cowboys, the real cowboys. <laughs> and we would go out and knock on doors, but North Texas is subject to ice storms that put inches of sheet ice on the street. And that night I was the only one who could slide into the church in my car. We usually had hundreds of people. I was the pastor, the only one who showed up. So I finally got into the church, slipping around on the walkway. And there was a table with hundreds of names on it of people we knew needed Jesus. And you know, I looked around, there wasn't anybody there, not a staff member, not a deacon, not an elder. And I told myself, you know, self, I think I'll just go home. Have you ever had God talk to you in an audible voice? as if he said, Joel, you way-faced, lily-livered, spineless, pusillanimous wimp, or something. That's a loose translation. If people were here, you'd go, all right, all right, all right. So I picked up a name. And on that card was the one man I least wanted to see of any man I'd talked to in months. Man was a tough guy. He was a firefighter, but he and his girlfriend had been to see me in my office and they were having problems. In fact, he had thrown her over the balcony of her apartment into some shrubbery. And I've never been good at, at non-directive counseling. I told him what I thought about that. 
he didn't like me, and I only liked him enough to get into heaven. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the card I picked up. I said, oh, Lord, no, not him. And it's like, go. Have you ever heard God's voice audibly? I mean, it's like he said, go. I slid down the street to this man's house that I didn't like. He didn't like me. I knocked on the door. It was a modest little house. He came to the door, opened it, and in his hand was a Gideon New Testament. He looked at me and I looked at him and, and he said, it's strange to see you here. And I thought, he doesn't know how strange it is. It's good he doesn't know. <laughs> and then this clueless man said, I've been reading over here in this book of he couldn't even say Ephesians. He held up it and I said, you call it Ephesians. <laughs> oh, okay. And I was freezing outside. So I said, could I come in? Oh, yeah, come in. And he said, I want you to tell me, what does this mean over here in verses 8 and 9 when it says, by grace are you saved through faith? And it's the gift of God, not of works. He said, I don't know what that means. Well, I sat down on a green damask-covered divan. I remembered it was so old a spring was coming through it, and I sat down on the spring, but I didn't care. <laughs> and in 10 minutes, this clueless man who couldn't even name the book of the Bible had given his life to Christ. I baptized him. I saw him 20 years later, still walking with the Lord. We talked about that night when he couldn't even name the book of the Bible he was reading. And in 10 minutes, he became a born-again believer. I don't know if there's somebody here who wandered in the night and said, I, you may even say, I don't even quite know why I'm here, but <laughs> I'm here. You may not know how to find Genesis from Revelation. That doesn't bother him. He found Philip. He found my friend. And he can find you. Oh, wait a minute. There's one other kind here. Oh, yes. And that's the cynic, the smart aleck, the person who already knows it all. Can't tell him anything. Here he's named Nathaniel. He's a, uh, he, Philip says, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming, and Jesus, with a kind of radar, said, well, here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile. That is, he will say what he's thinking. Nathanael said, how do you know me? How do you know I'm that way? And Jesus said, <laughs> when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel did the biggest 180 degrees in John's gospel. He went from saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth is so small it wouldn't even show up on your GPS. It's not even named in the Old Testament. Josephus, the Jewish geographer, didn't even name it. How can anything good come out of nowhere? He went from that to saying, Rabbi, you're the son of God. Because Jesus said, when you were under the fig tree... I saw, you know, that doesn't mean that Jesus had a pair of Bosch and Lone binoculars. The fig tree would have been inside of a courtyard, a quadrangle in a house, and a fig tree was where 
Hebrews would sit and reflect on the coming of the Messiah. That is, when, when Jesus told this know-it-all, I saw you under the fig tree, their eyes locked, and Nathaniel knew that Jesus knew that Nathaniel knew that Jesus knew what Nathaniel had been thinking about. And Jesus did what it took to change a cynic and a know-it-all on the spot. And he can do that with you if he has to. <laughs> Could I tell you another pastoral story in my life? I was pastor of a, a very large church in, in Fort Worth, and up in the balcony in the church, it was nearly a city block away, Ron Welber and his wife Susan, three children were there. He, he, he knew his life was empty. He was looking for something. He was really kind of a... Of a uh, of a minor, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what you'd call, extortionate interest charger and had a reputation in the city, but he came to church and I gave the appeal. He didn't move. The next Saturday, I was sitting in his house in a ranch south of Fort Worth with a New Testament telling him and Susan and the children about Jesus. They were back at church the next day and I gave as strong appeal as I can and he just looked at me and I looked at him, didn't move. The next day was a Monday. I had to fly from Dallas-Fort Worth International to Charlotte, North Carolina for a speaking engagement. There are at any time in the United States 10,000 commercial airlines in the air. He didn't know I was going to Charlotte, but what I didn't know, he was going to Charlotte. And as I walked through the security device, he could have been anywhere. I could have been anywhere. I turned around, and there was Ron Welburn framed in that device in Charlotte. What was more, we had seats next to one another on the seat back from Charlotte, the plane, to DFW. And you say, well, the odds just caught up with you. If you believe that's just odds, you believe a printing plant could grow up and dictionaries would fall out of the sky. It was a divine appointment. He needed God to do something so shaking in his life that there wasn't any denying that God was in it. Same flight, two seats next to one another. Either one of us could have been anywhere. Well, suffice it to say, the next Sunday, he nearly jumped out of the balcony, <laughs> he and his family. And to this day, a follower of Jesus. He was a cynic, really, a tough guy, almost like a loan shark deal maker. But God did what it took against all odds, putting us on seats by one another when we could have been anywhere. It was a divine prearrangement. He does that. <laughs> he may do it for somebody here tonight. Now, these were different kinds of people, weren't they? Look, look at it. Here, was, here were people asking life's biggest questions, why are we here? Here's somebody who was only potentially hadn't done anything yet. Here was somebody who was clueless, and here was a cynic, a doubter, a know-it-all, and Jesus did what it takes to reach. But there's one thing they all had in common. Come close to me, man, because it's one thing everyone who follows him has to have in common. And that is John said, Behold the Lamb of God. As different as every one of you are here tonight out at the extension of your personality, if you become a Christian, 
And if you have a home in heaven where he's going to prepare a place for you, you all have to do this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As different as all of them were, they had to look at Jesus. <laughs> you know, over in John 3.16 is one of the favorite Bible verses in all the world. God so what? Loved the world that he gave his what? Only that whoever what? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you know what's right by that? Right before it? A snake. It's a strange place to find a snake. It was right before that. Jesus told Nicodemus, it, it, it's like it was in the Old Testament when the disobedient Hebrews were being bitten by carpet vipers and they were dying. And Moses had a Hebrew jeweler make a snake and put it up on a pole. And he said, everybody who looked at it lived. And he said, that's the way it's going to be with me. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all human beings to me. As different as those first followers were, they all did that. There's a wonderful story right here in London. You may have heard it, but I'd like to tell it since I'm here. The great preacher Spurgeon was testing out the acoustics in a public hall here on a Saturday. He preached without amplification. He was in this building testing out the acoustics, and up in the balcony, a long way, there was a workman with his back to Spurgeon. Didn't even know he was there. And Spurgeon bellowed out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the worker up there had been under conviction about his own sin. He heard this voice come out of nowhere, <laughs> dropped his tool belt, dropped on his knees, and came to Christ. <laughs> At the moment, Spurgeon didn't know he was up there. He didn't know where the voice came from. It was the voice of God to him. Those of you here tonight, by background, by a hundred different ways, are different, 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 out here, different. But there's one thing you've got to do, and that is to behold the Lamb of God and do what these first followers did, put one foot in front of the other and follow him. Now, sometimes we preachers talk about being justified, regenerated, saved, redeemed, ransomed, and all of those are good words. But do you know what Jesus walked up to people and told them to do? It was much simpler than that. It was two words. Follow me. Now, let me give you an example of what following means. <laughs> it's, it's real rudimentary, basic, and fundamental. It means to put one foot in front of the other and stay as close to someone as you can. And that's what he told people. Follow me. And in this balcony around this evening, that same Christ, who even though unseen is more real than any other here, would say the same thing. You asking life's big questions? He says, follow me. You're just potential. You haven't done it yet. You don't know. Follow me. Clueless. Follow me. Know it all. Follow me. Put one foot in front of the other. 
follow me. All around, would you bow your head with me just a moment? Would you pray? Would you ask God if this is a word for you? Everyone, for just a moment, not praying for someone at the other end of the pew, but just asking God about yourself. It's okay to do that. Just to say to the Father, search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray. Would you dare to pray that? That's the psalmist prayer. Jeremiah says our heart's deceitful, desperately wicked. We have to have God help us search it if we know it. Search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray. Do you ask him searching? Just right now. Somebody here needs to look at the Lamb of God, Jesus, lived a perfect life in active obedience to the Father and then laid himself out on the cross in passive obedience and shed his blood for you. He's covered you by his living and his dying. And he's saying to somebody tonight, come and see. I'm going to pray, and I want you to remain in an attitude of prayer as the ministry comes and opens this altar. Lord, please speak by your Holy Spirit. You've promised us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I pray for that somebody here tonight, even if it's one somebody. who's asking a big question, why am I here? Lord, may they come and see. I'm asking for that person who life has kicked to the curb and marginalized and still say, what can, all there is is potential. Lord, Lord, may they come and see. For that person who's like me years ago, clueless, I don't know what tomorrow holds. Oh God, may they come and see. And for the proud, know it all. That person who may say, I've been to church before I know all about this stuff. Lord, break through them with a word that astonishes them, and may they come and see. Lord, may your spirit have freedom here tonight. We pray you'd bind the accuser and the adversary, and may they be a spirit of conviction, O oh God, about eternal matters. And for that person here who needs to come and see, speak, Lord. As you did those days in Galilee, speak, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Now, in an attitude of prayer, staying that way, the ministry will come. And its own way, press this appeal. There's some people here tonight, and tonight is the day that you walk out this church and you're following Jesus. He's been following you. You're here tonight, not by accident, as Joel was saying. These things are pre-planned by God. But just as Joel was saying, you need to respond. Jesus says, follow me. You need to decide to follow him.
If you're in this place today as we're in an attitude of prayer and you're ready to follow Jesus, you're ready to have your sins forgiven so that you can follow Jesus, and you say, now is my time. And with heads bowed in prayer, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are. You're raising it so that we can pray for you, but you're also, more importantly, raising it as a symbol to God saying, it's my time. I see the hand over there. Is there anybody else upstairs, downstairs? This is your time. Just lift your hand. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to say, yes, Lord, a big yes to the Lord. I'm going to follow you. Wash me. Let my sins be forgiven me that I can know you on earth and know that when I die, I will be with you in heaven where you've gone to prepare a place. That's one more time. Is there anybody else? Yeah, I see in the middle. Is there anybody else upstairs? Can't quite see with some of the lights. Am I missing anyone? Yep, over there. We're picking them up. Anybody else? You're ready. It's time. God's brought you to this moment. This is your day of salvation. Just lift your hand. Father, we pray for those that are responding right now. We thank you that this was your plan. Today is their big red letter day. It's the day they walk out of this building, not by themselves. They're now a Jesus follower. Thank you, forgive our sins. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you call us from all tribes and nations and groups and personalities. We thank you for these lives in Jesus' name. Those that lifted your hands, when we get into a ministry time now, someone's got a gift. They're standing around, a gift to pack. They'll spend some moments with you, nothing to be uh, frightened about, nothing strange is going to happen um, uh, and everything. But now we're going to go into a time of ministry for the rest of us that are here today. And the message was one of uniqueness. We all come the same way through the blood of Calvary into salvation. But God has called us uniquely. And there's some people here today, we want to pray for you because, as Joe was saying, you're wondering whether you're a strange person, whether you fit in, whether you've got anything to offer. Maybe you're like one of those characters that we heard of earlier. And God wants to affirm you tonight that he has created you he broke the mold when he created you. He's got a lot of restoring work to do in our lives. We all need restoration. We all need healing. We all need to become who we are. You know, Christianity, when you follow Jesus, it's a process of self-discovery, finding out who you really are, getting out the bits that aren't you, and finding out who you really are, the beautiful person that God has placed deep within you to come forth, God wants to do that. God wants to, to affirm you today that he loves you, that he who began a good work in you is going to finish it. And he's got a plan and purpose for you. Let's just wait on the Lord for a few minutes as the Holy Spirit is touching you with this message. We're responding in our hearts. We're thinking, Lord, how is this message applying to me? I believe that out of this message that there are people here today and, uh, and you have such a low self-image of, of yourself. You, you, really, you really don't think much of yourself. I'm not saying you hate yourself. Maybe there's some self-loathing or, or, or self-hating here today. Maybe we'll pray for you. But also, 
you just don't like yourself. You don't think much of yourself. You don't think that God can use you. It's those types of thoughts. I'm worthless. What have I got to offer? Who am I that God could use me? I don't even like myself. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is touching your life tonight through this message and saying, on the contrary, God has called you. Not many of us wealthy, not many of us clever, not many of us all the things that the world values, God doesn't call many of those people. He calls those that people don't think much of. So if you don't think much of yourself, you're a prime candidate for God's glory to rest on you. Tonight, we want to pray for you. We want to pray and ask God to fill you with His love and His affirmation and His acceptance and so that you can begin to appreciate that if God values you so much that He died on the cross... And it's time for you to value God's love for you too. And you can walk out today, we believe, with a measure of healing, a measure of confidence, a measure of strength, that whatever's happened in your life to bring you to a place where you don't think much of yourself, that God can do something tonight to help you on the journey of self-esteem that comes in the light of His esteem for you. Loved you so much. We're going to pray for those in a minute. Let's just see if there's anything else that's... Um, maybe some people here today I think I'll just throw this out as a leading you know if it's you you think you've, dis you've disqualified yourself something's happened you're a Christian but something's happened in your Christian life where you think you've disqualified yourself with God and you thought well he saved me I'm a Christian but what I did or what I said or, or, or what I allowed to happen I've disqualified myself. God, God could never use me. Well, God is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. And if that's you here tonight or you're watching on the internet, and you feel somehow I've, you've disqualified yourself, I want to tell you today that God is your qualification and the blood of Jesus is your qualification. We want to pray for you. The spirit of restoration come in your life. Get back in the fight. Get back into that area that God has called you and move forward that those are for you just, just, we're throwing out these leadings they may touch some people's lives and then we're going to bring you forward we're going to minister to you and we'll have a time of worship while that's taking place and people can continue to do business with God we're just going to rush things um, uh, in okay linked a bit to that disqualification I believe there may be some people that you're struggling with divorce issues. You've been divorced for whatever reasons in the past. And, and the fact that you've experienced divorce, you've a sense of failure in your life, a sense of failure before God, even a sense perhaps of shame that's not being, not being dealt with because of some sort of divorce issue. I believe that God wants to speak into your life today and release you from some of these things that he doesn't want you to carry anymore, that there is a new day, that, 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 that there's a, a restoration. Don't live in the light of that past thing. God wants to bring restoration. God wants to take you forward out of that. Don't be debilitated by that, but be, be healed. Um, uh, 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 for, for. 
And then finally, I, I, I think there's some people and uh, it's like, you think it, there are some people that are weird, but you, you, you have a remarkable personality and you're different, but it's not a difference that, it, that is a bad difference. It's just really who God has made you. And there's a uniqueness that's there. But sometimes you think to yourself, you know, am I, am I weird? Uh, do I have to fit in, like Joel was saying? Am I strange? But it's not a strangeness that is sinful. It's not a strangeness that is arrogant. It's just you, you, you are just a very unique person, a very different person. And at times you've suppressed that uniqueness of who you are. You've hidden it. You've pushed it down. Because, as, as you've heard in the sermon, perhaps, you feel that you have to be something that you are not in the core of who God made you. As I said, it's not, this isn't something that is sinful or arrogant or, or anything, but it's just a question of a self-expression of who God made you. And I believe that we want to pray for you tonight. And, say, and, and God is saying, hey, why are you trying to be something that I didn't create you to be? It's okay to be who you are in 